Hey guys, this is Jesse here. Uh, so for this episode, I'm introducing Josh Farr. Josh is the founder and face of Campus Consultancy, which is a student leadership consultancy which operates over many, many different universities in Australia. Josh is a super interesting uh, guy. He's been very um, influential on my personal development and my career uh, journey. So without further ado, here's the interview. I really hope you enjoy it. So you're responsible for creating a campus consultancy. Um, you know, when did you realize that there was a business opportunity uh, in the student leadership space? And how did you initially act on it? Yeah. So for me, and I got this from a guy named Peter Diamandis. He said once on a podcast, problems equal opportunities. So as soon as there's a problem, there's an opportunity. Firstly, to help somebody. And then secondly, to help them in a way that is valuable enough for them that they'll pay for it, that you can run a sustainable um, and effective business. So for me, when I started, I was working in graduate recruitment. I worked with uh, worked for a company called Teacher Australia for a year and a half for a nonprofit. And I met with thousands of students. And because we didn't have a really big marketing budget, I had to get creative in like, how do I get into a college like St. Hilda's and get up in front of students and pitch the program? And I got into Queens and Ormond and Trinity. And I came into lots of colleges because I, my thesis was I wanted to get in front of like really high performing students who also had the skills that employers wanted. And so for me, I was like, okay, I'm going to go for clubs and colleges. And as I started working with these different groups, I got in and I started to build relationships with them and see them over a couple of years. And I just kept noticing that, you know, once I'd go in and give my pitch and I'd start chatting to them like, Hey, what are you, what are you guys all working on? Lots of them had these same problems. They were struggling with how to work well in a team. They were struggling with change. They were struggling with culture. They were struggling with marketing. They're like basic kind of, not basic, but fundamental problems that I realized having worked and traveled around the world, these are business problems. Yeah. This is what every business struggles with are the same things that student clubs and groups are struggling with. So my kind of aha moment was like, what if you thought about your college, your club, your committee, being an ambassador, being a mentor, what if you thought about that through the lens of how does someone run a successful business? And so for me, I hadn't run my own business, but I'd worked in lots of other businesses. I'd managed restaurants. I'd worked in nightclubs. I'd been an engineer. I had all these casual jobs. I'd been a student volunteer. So I'd sort of been there and done it a little bit and realize, I didn't realize what I was doing was applying business principles. To me, they were just like made sense. Um, and when I went and studied the business literature, I realized like, oh, these are things that people would learn in a business degree, like how to run a good business. So my insight was, what if I went in, started working with students, taught them the things that helped me be successful in my various roles throughout my career and had them apply it to their student roles. And then when they did, they started getting really amazing results. Uh, so I worked with a group at University of Melbourne, had a coffee with the president of a club called Banking on Women. And they were like, how do we sign up more members? And just like over a coffee, I like spitballed some ideas and then membership in OWIC went through the roof. I think they signed up more members in one week than they did in the previous year. And so I started seeing case studies like that. I was like, oh, wow, this is like one, there's a problem. Two, I can solve the problem. And the third bit was if you can solve it, you've got problem solution fit. Third bit was, do I have product market fit? So I was like, who would pay for this? And I didn't want to charge students, but what I realized was there was a huge incentive for the universities to have really good clubs and colleges. Mm, okay. Yeah, and I was like, that was the insight, right? When you're like, oh, okay. Yeah. So I realized, I was like, huh, the uni has a problem here because if students aren't engaged, they drop out. It's a multi-billion dollar problem every year. And so I was like, okay, well, that's a problem. Um, and so I was like, well, how could I prov provide a solution that solves it, but is also like financially stable? And that's when I came up with the idea of like fee-for-service um, workshops that were, we'll train the students. The idea is, they benefit as humans, it's good for their careers, but it really helps all students. And then in turn, if it's helping all students, that'll help you with your attention issue. Um, so for a university to have to pay a couple hundred or a couple thousand dollars for a workshop or a couple of days worth of workshops, if that helps one, two, three students not drop out because they feel more supported, the events are more inclusive, all that kind of stuff, the financial ROI is enormous. Yeah. Um, and so over the years, we've been able to find more research and more data to prove like, hey, this really works. Yeah. Um, and then it just spread from there. It's a great value proposition for the clients with the universities and the students as well. 
And that was, and I appreciate you saying that, that was always sort of my split, was I had a different customer and user. So the student wasn't paying for the benefit. Whereas originally, when I sort of looked at it, I thought of it really through the student lens. And I was like, I then thought of it through the uni lens as a way to sort of make it sustainable. As I've gone on for now like four years and 21,000 plus students, I've realized like, oh, like having the buy-in from the university, like this university staff are there for the same reason. They want to support the students. And often some of the struggles are they're like, oh, we don't know how to do that. So I started thinking of it as, I really want to help the university staff get in the best position they can be for their careers and what they're doing. And then that'll trickle down. Um, so, you know, one of the things I was super proud of when COVID hit, was like, the numbers are ridiculous, like 12,000 plus staff lost their jobs at universities. But out of the whole network of people I know that we've worked with, I think I've heard of one person who was made redundant. We were with 100 plus different staff members. So that's not saying it's because of us, but the sort of people who are saying, oh, I want something new, I want a workshop, I want to change things. They're the people who stay in jobs because they're changing, they're moving things forward. And the people who sit back and go, oh, we don't want leadership workshops. Like students aren't here for leadership, they're here for their degree. Like that was true maybe in the 80s or the 90s. It hasn't been true for the last 20 years. And so, it's nice to work with people who are innovative and who care enough about students to say, yeah, we'll bring you guys in and do something new. Who, who aren't stuck at the Stone Age. Yeah. Because they become redundant. And the Stone Age is like, you know, this is, I'm stealing an idea from Yuval Noah Harari, but I read one of his essays. Uh, Sapiens. Also. Sapiens, right? So he wrote Sapiens, Ben right. Homodeus, yeah. and 21 Lessons. And one of his 21 Lessons is on education. It's really good. And one of the things he says there is like, in the 1500s, like, if your family had grown rice, he uses this example, like a, a farm, Chinese rice farmer, he's like, your family in China have grown rice for 300 years. It's what your dad did, your dad's dad did, and your great-grandfather did. Like, there's a good chance if they teach you how to grow rice, that you'll be able to use that skill set, And you'll be able to provide your family like they provided for you. And the trap is, that's not true in 2021. Because the world is changing so much and so frequently. So fast. So when you say to someone, is the world that you were born into the same as the world is now? Everyone says, no way. No way. That's never happened. So that as an idea is- ne Never happened on such a like quick scale. Ever, yeah. right? Like, unless you were in one of like the downfall of the Roman empire, right? In those years where it happened, like the world you were, growing in, you were born into. Pretty much the same that you live in pretty much the same right and so like yeah we had industrial revolution but that's only 100 years ago the fact that like when you were born when we were both born we're not super different in ages in our 20s like when we were born there was no social there was no internet when i was born you know yeah there was no internet when i was born no, no mobile phones when i was born no mobile phones no social media mm. you know so the rise now of UTS did a study where they said 45% of undergrads said explicitly they either wanted to work for or start their own startup. 45%. 45%. That's crazy. And this is five years ago, right? Yeah. Probably 55%. Yeah, maybe even more. 20 years ago, no one knew what a startup was. In 2000, the dot-com bubble burst and all these internet companies were like, ah, oh, that's a fad, you know? And so like the world we're in is so different to the world that we were born into. And that, like, that is a huge concept. So what was true in 2010 is not true in 2021. So this old school thinking of like a degree equals a job, that wasn't true when I was at uni in 2011. I was trying to get internships. I couldn't get one. I had great degrees, I had great grades, I had great scholarships. They didn't care. They wanted transferable skills. And now it's so funny, like eight years after that, I'm still like beating the drum of like, soft skills, transferable skills, 21st century skills, and everyone treats them as like a nice to have. Versus we spend thousands of hours getting a degree and almost no time intentionally working on the skills that employees really care about. Like, we know communication skills is the first, number one skill employees want. Almost no one's done a class or a course on communication skills. Like, yeah, I communicate my whole life. I'm like, yeah, so do people who like, you know, the, the worst communicators in the world also communicated their whole life. Like it, it, in the same way that you don't say, oh, I've just done maths my whole life. You know, it's like, no, if you want to do math, you've got to study math. If you want to do history, you've got to study history. If you want to do communication, you've got to study communication. And so like, I think where I had the insight was like, the market's changing. 
students are aware of that they're not getting jobs. Employers are aware that students aren't ready. There's a gap between university and work. And I could sort of see it, I think from all the reading and the study, like, oh, this is a changing in the way the world works. And I wanted to get ahead of it. And what I really wanted to do was help clients and students get ahead of it as well. Yeah, it's, it's awesome. Um, Thanks. Definitely helped me out. Um, I haven't like, found a job yet, but definitely like with the things that I've learned from you, I'm building up skills. I'm like running clubs, uh, running like my own blog and like starting my own business. Um, and a lot of it was because um, of the workshops you gave and, and the information that you gave me. Um, so thank you for that. Thanks, man. You're doing so, awesome. Question two. Um, I'm not going to announce every question. Question. Every right. How many questions do you have? Uh, four. Cool. I won't give such wordy responses. That's No, that's fine. It's really good stuff. Um, so who are your business idols? Ooh, business idols. I like this. So I like lots of different people for lots of yeah. different reasons. You mentioned Peter Diamandis before. Peter Diamandis is cool. So I read his book, Bold, which I absolutely loved. Um, and he started the X Prize. Um, and the reason I love him, it's worth checking out the X Prize, letter X Prize. Yeah. The reason Virgin Galactica exists is because they won the X Prize. Um, so he basically said... I'm going to find the world's biggest problems. I'm going to offer a ridiculous reward, like millions of dollars, and I want a whole bunch of people to compete to win it. And so, you know, at the moment they're trying to feed, they're trying to find um, a substitute for like lab-grown meat. And to win that, it's got to be cheaper, better for the environment, and taste better in a blind test by professional chefs. It's got to be cheaper, taste better for the environment, and taste better than traditional meat. Because the th three things at the moment is like, we can get meat, we know how to do that. It's just awful for the environment. And alternatives to meat like Beyond Burgers, delicious, but very expensive. Mm. And the third bit is like some veggie burgers and stuff just taste awful. Yeah. So like, there's these three problems and they're like, all right, we're gonna give you a stupidly big prize if you win this, but you've got to beat all three of those things. So what I like he does is he says, the world's biggest problems are the biggest opportunities. And I love that it's all about collaboration. Everything's open sourced. It's done in partnership with lots of people and the humility to say like, I don't have the answers. So I absolutely love sort of his approach um, to the world. Another one that is probably less known maybe in like Australian entrepreneurial circles, but she's a boss, is Sarah Blakely. She started Spanx in the US. She had a really, really good podcast on the Tony Robbins podcast. It's one of my like, top five podcasts of all time. Sarah Blakely. And what I love about her is when she started Spank, she just like found a problem and it was a problem she'd experienced. So I love entrepreneurs who like solve their own problems, but she's also just a gangster. Like when she came up with this product, she had no idea what she was doing. She openly admits it. She sort of challenged all the norm, like social norms. And then when her product got into stores, she went to the stores, like was in a dress, in a high heels, like making sure every single person in the store knew about her product. It was just the way she did it and the way she tells the story, such like humility and humor. She's just awesome. And so like, it's one of those things where I'm like, what would Sarah do right now? It's like a good little trigger. Okay. So Peter Demandis, Sarah Blake is absolutely awesome. I have to listen to her Tony Robbins podcast. She's good. And then, you know, Tony's a rock star as well. There's things I really actually don't particularly relate to in my business in the way that some of the traditional speakers have done. Some things I love though about say like a Tony Robbins or someone who grows their business based on brand where they're the product essentially mm. at least at the start. Which is what you're doing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right now so much of it is like me as the product. Um, one thing I really like when people do that and they do it well is it, and this is kind of an odd one but the reason I like it is it forces me to live my values. So it's one thing to profess your values, put your values on a wall. It's totally different when you're conscious of them, living them in public each and every day. Yeah. So like, I did a workshop the other day at Griffith University for their honors college, like a couple hundred of the highest performing students at the entire university, like off the charts. And I walked in about to give this keynote, you know, three identical keynotes back to back. Well, his huge amphitheater about to be the keynote and the guy at the door is like hey man I saw you at the alley the other day and the alley is like a surf spot on the Gold Coast and so it was this moment where I'm like I'm in public doing stuff I'm like cool I can stand up on LinkedIn and do a post every day talking about my values but like when someone sees me surfing at the alley am I being nice am I being kind like 
Am I being angry and frustrated? Am I smiling? Like Camera's always rolling. Always rolling. And so I think that's true for everybody, not just if you're building like a personal brand. I agree. Yeah. So like, you know, living in a college, like you're always on, you know, if you're the house president or whatever, you know this because everyone knows you're the president. But I think what people miss is it's like, your personal brand is your reputation. And so like on the up, as how you treat people as a first year becomes your reputation that you get when you step into a leadership role. And I don't think we spend enough time talking about let's develop our brand and our reputation so we're qualified to get into leadership roles rather than saying, oh, now you're leaders, now we'll work on your personal brand. I think this is a conversation we need to be having with students before they even come to college, before they even come to university. Yeah. It's that important. Well, it is, right? And like when they come in, they do their interviews to get a spot in Hilda's or any college, like, I won't speak for the college, but like from my college experience, you want to know that people are going to contribute positively to the culture. You know, they're going to care for others. And as young people, I think we don't, I never did values. I didn't do values till I was 25. Yeah. I couldn't have told you what my two values are. Yeah. Um, and there's a really great, um, Brene Brown has a PDF um, online. It's in her book, Dare Lead. There's a free PDF online where you can go through this activity and narrow down like your top two values. Um, and I've done a lot of values work, but that really helped me. When I got down to the top two, I was like, okay, here are two things that anytime I come up against a problem, I can see if I'm living them out. Mm. Um, so for me, it's gratitude and service. Gratitude is I'm thankful for everything I have. You know, the fact that I can sit down and chat with you, afford a coffee, the lights are on, I've got clean drinking water when 800 million people on the planet don't have access to that. Like one in 10 people alive don't have a clean drinking water. Like that is ludicrous. Mm. So gratitude for everything I've got, everything I've had. Luck is a part of that as well. Um, and then the other bit is service. So it's like, if I'm grateful for what I've got, the service bit is what can I give? And that I'm constantly working on this. Like, you know, I wrestle with it, running a business, I wrestle with it financially. I'm like, the business is thankfully worked that part off, being fortunate, being more financially successful than I ever thought. But then you get instant imposter syndrome. Like, who am I to run a business? Like, you know, no, surely I'm not worthy. Like, did, did I, am I tricking myself here? Like, this it, is all going to go away. Even you get that. Always. There's a TED talk by a guy, um, which one of the founders is it? Oh, I can't remember if it's Scott or the other founder of Atlassian. I think, no, it's not. It's Mike Cannon Brooks, the other founder. He does a TED talk on imposter syndrome. I'm pretty sure he's the richest person in Australia. The two founders of Atlassian. I think they're one and two right now. But... One of the richest guys, one of the biggest companies, literally gave a TED talk about imposter syndrome. Mm. And he's like, he mentions, you know, I sit in the Qantas lounge and I feel like, why am I here? I don't belong here. I'm not in a suit. And so, like, for me, that was helpful. I'm like, all right, if the guy at the top experiences this, like, it's okay that we feel that. It, it gives you some perspective. It, it really seems like it's part of the human condition to be a little bit insecure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it comes from a place of, like, you don't want to mess it up. Yeah, I say from that. caring. Yeah, if you're nervous, you can. Yeah, like if yeah, you, you weren't say that. That's yeah. a cash bad. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> nervous, you can. Well, I think it's true. Like if you if you weren't nervous, like I don't know, you're either incredibly experienced or, or you just don't give a shit at all. Yeah, you know, like you know, if you can imagine if you go on a first date and you weren't nervous at all, like that's a problem. Yeah, that is. <laughs> you know, you're like, oh, I'm gonna go to the birth of my child, but I'm not nervous. Like, are you kidding me? Like. I think it's, it, it, and it's a humility and it's an acceptance that says, and a maturity, I think, that says, you know, this could go wrong and I don't want it to go wrong because it's important to me. Yeah. And so I think if nerves equal this could go wrong equals I don't want it to go wrong because it's important to me, then it's fine to have that. It just shouldn't stop you doing it. Yeah. Like, oh, I'm nervous to apply for this job because I really want it, but I want it so bad that I won't even try. It's like, that's, that's faulty software. Yeah. And so, yeah, Brene Brown says you don't get less afraid, you get more brave. And I love that. So that's a good saying. Yeah. You don't get less afraid, you get more brave. Um, so, yeah. So, anyway, I might have gone off track there a little bit, but... Um, All right. Um, mm-hmm. No, that was really good. Um, next question. <laughs> what advice do you have for aspiring entrepreneurs? Oh, I like this. So, first thing is, like, just first principles. Why should... So if, you want, if you're going to be an entrepreneur, if you're going to run a business, fundamentally, the idea is you do something with your time that makes the world a better place that's financially, economically, socially sustainable. Yeah. 
So there's a couple of things involved there. You've got to do something. It's got to be good for people. It's got to work financially. It's got to pay the bills. And I learned this from working in nonprofits. If you can't pay the bills, you can't do the good in the world. It's fine to say money's evil and I want to help people. Cool. But if you can't pay your rent, you're not doing that for very long. It's not sustainable. Mm-hmm. So you need to, I think, and my obsession is how do you do both of those things? How do you help people and be quote unquote financially successful? Which means you can pay for your kids' school and all that cool stuff. So for entrepreneurs, I think one is having that awareness. You're going to do something that's good for the world that's financially sustainable. How do you do that? If you've got the audacity to ask people for money, you better be able to help them in some way. And you've got to be able to help them in a competitive marketplace. So the first thing is always identify who you want to help and what you want to help them with. What's the problem you're really solving? And when it's getting the problem, I think we spend way too little time on understanding the problem, getting obsessed with the problem. We say like, fall in love with your customer. So it's like, find out what's a problem that someone has that you'd be interested in working towards solving. And like, there's a million problems people have. Like, if you were to ask someone like, hey, what's wrong right now? Like, what are you annoyed about? They'll tell you a million things. So there's an abundance of problems. Peter Diamanda says there's an abundance of opportunities. So it's picking one, and then it's picking one that one, once you understand it, the next thing is then figuring out, all right, well, what could I do to solve it? Can I get problem solution fit? So with that, it's figuring out, well, okay, who else is trying to solve this problem? And why isn't that working? Why is, okay, if someone wants to get a job and everyone knows that students are struggling to get jobs, okay, well, there's a career uni service. Well, that's obviously not helped this individual get a job, right? But so is none of the other 50,000 career services out there that are available. So why hasn't it got to this person? And there must be a reason. And so if you can zone in on what we call a minimum viable audience, if you can help one person actually solve their problem for free, don't take any money for it, but can you actually help someone solve their problem? Then you've got problem solution fit, which means you've got a problem, you've got a solution, and the solution works. And then the question is, how do you scale? Sort of. So the question then I think is, what is the next question before you scale it is, what is that worth to them? So let's say, for example, you're looking for a job right now, right? So if you were to say, if you had to guess, how long do you think it's going to take you to get a job? Um, anywhere from a week to six months. Okay, that's a huge time frame. What do you think is most likely if you had to give me a specific number? If you're like at a 90% confidence interval where you're like, I'm 9 out of 10 confident I could hit this, how long do you think it would take you before you could get a job? Uh, three months. Three months, right? So let's call that 12 weeks. So how many hours a week would you work if you were to get a job? Roughly, what would, you, what would be the ideal? Uh, 40. 40? Yeah. 40, okay. So you basically want a full-time job in 12 weeks. Yeah. Cool. Minimum wage is about 25 bucks, right? Uh, well, sort of what I'm looking for right now is an internship. Um, for yeah. summer? For the summer, yeah, which would be a 40-hour. But not like immediately, not like... Oh, okay, cool, cool. So it's not like a casual job. It's something that you want to get in the future. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like okay, so cool. something more related to what I want to do in the future rather than uh, like a part-time alongside uni gig. Anyway, sorry. Okay, sorry, cool. Regardless. So in that case, the, the math isn't going to work in the same way. The point is, let's imagine that you have tried to get this internship over the summer and you didn't get it. Yeah. Right? There's some limits to that. There's some costs to that. You're pretty confident that you can get this job by the summer, which is awesome. Now, that's great. You might say, so someone comes along and says, hey, we run this service, we help commerce students get internships. You might be like, no, 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 I can do that by myself. But in the market, there's gonna be a percentage of people who aren't confident they can get that by themselves. And for them, if you say, okay, well, what would getting an internship be worth to you? You know, if I could guarantee you an internship for $5, would you pay for it? Oh yeah, definitely, okay. If I could guarantee you an internship for $100, oh yeah, I think it should be worth it. Okay, what about $300? Oh, no, 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 I just, you know, it doesn't matter to me that much. So you might go, okay, somewhere between 100 and 300 What about $200? Like, oh, okay, if you, if you were really confident you could help me, I might pay you $200. You're like, okay. So you want an internship, and you're not sure you can get it. Problem. Goal problem. Here's my solution. I can get you an internship. This is our method. We've done it with a bunch of people. This is how it works. Cool. What's it worth to you? $200, okay. Now you need to figure out on the back end, all right, if I can help someone get a job for $200, firstly, like if they'll pay you to do it, you can do it, awesome. You've got a client, you've helped them, happy customer, you've validated your price point. Then once you've got it at $200, say, okay, if I wanted to just pay for my life, you know, rent, food, electricity, say it costs you $30,000 a year, 
um, to pay for your life. You'd be like, okay, well, I'd have to help 150 students get an internship at $200 each. So two questions there are um, demand and capacity, supply and demand, essentially. Demand, are there 150 students out there willing to pay $200 to get an internship? Probably. Yeah. Capacity, could I do that? So, okay, if I help a student get a job for 200 bucks, how many hours of work does that take? Say it takes one working day, right? It takes eight hours spread out over a couple of weeks. All right, well, that's 200 students at 100, 150 students at 200 bucks each. 200 students, sorry, 150 students is 150 days a year. You're like, well, that's less than 365, so at least it's possible. You know, 50 weeks, that's about three days a week. It's like, huh, I could help 150 students get a job. That's what you're doing. Two, is it good for the world? Yeah, it is. Three, is it financially sustainable? Economically and time-wise. You're like, huh, and we're just making this up, right? Like, huh, I could pay for my life if it only cost me 30 grand a year. I could pay for my life. I'd only work three days a week. I could help people and I'd be my own boss. You're like, bloody hell. It's possible. It's possible. And hopefully it's like, that's going to cool business model, right? Yeah. And that's the thing. I think like, and like that literally is a business. Someone could literally go and run that exact business that we just came up with randomly. Yeah. Right? Because there's enough people, you need to validate the demand in the market. It's like basically, that's how to build a business in, in five minutes, right? Yeah. How to, like you validate the demand in the market. Then you go, okay, would I want to do that and have the skills to do that? Key is you've got to actually be able to help them, right? There's no shortage of, and there's laws against this. There's no shortage. If you take $200 from everyone and your marketing says, I guarantee you a job. And you don't. And you don't. Like that's wrong, right? Yeah. Ethically and, and legally. Yeah. But if you're like, I'm going to teach you employability skills or whatever that are going to help you in your pursuit of getting a job, the appeal is less, but at least you're within the laws. You're covered. So you got to make sure that like when you do this, you're smart, right? Yeah. And this is where people have insurances, they see lawyers, but also you make sure that what you're selling, you can actually do. Yeah. This is where it becomes being honest. Where people get screwed is, and where I think students honestly are frustrated is, they're not paying for a degree when they come to uni. They're paying for that career. And when you come to uni, the employability rates after uni are terrible. If you look at like the employability rates at universities in Australia. What are they here? I don't know exactly what they are at this uni, but you can find there's a, I think it's called a quilt study or something like that online. And it only says, I think it only says full-time work within four months of graduation. I'm not even sure if it says in their degree. Yeah. But when you drill into it. completely unrelated. Yeah, exactly, right? When you drill into it, it's like, the data's bad. How, how much? Oh, it's like, in full-time work, don't program this, you have to check it, but yeah. from memory, full-time work non-related to your degree I f- varies from about 50% up to about 80%, I think is the max. Yeah. So Not related. In a not related field. In a 50 to 80%. Yeah, is employed, sorry, is yeah. employed. So what that means is between one in five and one in two, four months after uni, don't even have a job at all. Yeah. Right? So now if you go, okay, you're sitting at the dining hall and you sit, say you're the, you're the highest employability in the country, right? This uni does not. If you do, you're sitting at the dining hall with four buddies, there's five of you. Yeah. One of you is not having a job four months after graduation. Yeah. Any job. Let alone a job in your field. Let alone a job that you like. Yeah. Just not a job at all. Nothing. So, okay, for four out of, so people go, well, it works, it doesn't work for everyone, but it works for most people. Cool, unless you're the one in five. Yeah, then what happens? Yeah, then you might pay 200 bucks to get an internship through a business, right? Yeah. So I think that's the, that's the gap of going, okay, well, this, someone's bought into, it doesn't matter if it's a uni, it's a healthcare, it's a gym, it's whatever people buy. Any area of your life, if people have a problem and you can actually help them, there's a potential for business there. Yeah. And I think what, the challenge is it takes, and this is just a reality, and this is controversial. It's, this is not controversial in the science, it's controversial politically. The number one predictor of success in careers is in personality research, psychology personality research, openness. Two traits of openness are intelligence, IQ, fluid intelligence, and creativity. Intelligence, so, creativity. Yeah. IQ predicts career, quote unquote, success more than anything. Really? No one wants to talk about it. And so it's not politically correct because then it's labeled like, I'm smarter, I'm not smarter. No, that doesn't mean if you don't have an off the chart IQ, you can't have a great job, that's not at all. But what it means is like, it's like anyone can be an astronaut. It's like, no, you can't. Like that's not, there's a naivete there mm. versus saying, okay, 
what would make me happy? What do I want? What do I actually care about? And how can I do that at a level that's like sort of matched with my intention and my sort of capabilities intellectually? Like if you want to, especially if you want to start a business, like it's hard. You need to see, you need to see into the market. You need an insight. Like if it was easy, everyone would do it. You need to be conscientious. Another one of the big five personality traits. You need to work your butt off. Because like most things won't work. You gotta try things, experiment with things. You gotta be super open to feedback and having people tell you no. Yeah. So like neuroticism, another one of the big five. If you're off the charts, if you have tons of negative emotion and can't handle rejection, entrepreneurship is a bad route. Yeah. But if you're like, okay, I'm kind of creative, I've got some ideas. I'm willing to work hard if I care about it. I'm happy to speak to people, you know, somewhat extroverted. Um, I'm nice enough so people will want to work with me, somewhat agreeable, and I'm willing to get some negative feedback, at least in my first ideas, I'm not super neurotic. Like, you've got to have a relatively good spread of these personality traits, mm. I think, to start. I'm interested to know how malleable you think uh, someone's personality is. Definitely. So this is where you get the nature versus nurture thing. Mm. And there's tons of proof. Like, the nurture thing, by and large, can influence almost all of them. The hardest bit is fluid intelligence. There's less research for that. There's more in terms of like what you do. So say fluid intelligence. Can you define that? Yeah. So like, and, and again, this is a theory, right? We know about the brain very little. Yeah. Lucy, they look at say when they look at IQ, they split between fluid intelligence. There's another one. I can't remember what the other one's called. Um, but fluid intelligence is like think of it as how creative you get, how creative you are, how many new ideas you have, and it sort of dips and starts to go down after you sort of mid twenties. There's different reports, but it's basically like that. Now, the rate it dips, you can prevent. The number one predictor for that is exercise, which is interesting. You can mm. stop it going down, keep your brain fresh, right? Brain's two to three percent of your body mass, uses twenty to thirty percent of your calories, needs tons of oxygen. So aerobic and aerobic exercise, the more you do, the more oxygen goes up. Okay. Right? So it's good for your brain. Um, just a helpful thing to know in life. Why should I exercise? Because it'll keep my brain sharp for a long time. Yeah, one of many reasons. One of many reasons. The other one, think of it as like built up intelligence. So like you learn all the things you learn and now I can sit here and I can help you with engineering. I could do interview prep. I could talk to you about business. I could talk to you about cricket or rugby. I have no idea how this computer works, right? Because I just don't know that. I haven't built up that knowledge. Yeah. So when we think about that, like that's harder in terms of like IQ, but on pretty much everything else, there's a room to move. Yeah. You can be more empathetic. You can be a better communicator. You can learn to handle negative emotions. Um, whether you generate less of them or you handle them better as a point of contention, but nonetheless. Yeah. So bringing this back to the entrepreneurial stuff, like where would you start with advice would I have? It's like, there's a series of steps in a way of thinking. A lot of it is how you think about the problem. Coupled with, it's gonna take a ton of hard work. But the thing, that, the, the thing here is, if you're saying, oh, let me like, it's just saying like we, most people can't be entrepreneurs. Not at all. I think everyone should give it a go if it's appealing to them. But in the same way that you should start dancing if dance is appealing to you. We should start doing art if that's appealing to you. It's just another thing you can do. It just happens to be correlated with money. Mm. So I think that's what the appeal is of like having a side hustle or working in the gig economy is like that idea of a huge percentage of the population say, I want to be my own boss. It's like, Cool, you want the freedom that comes with that, but with freedom comes responsibility. Yeah. And you, you, you both rise equally. Yeah. And that trap of like, I don't want to do anything, but I want all my rights. It's like, it doesn't work like that. No. 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 You know, now you can't be persecuted, but nonetheless, in the entrepreneurship world, those two things rise together. The harder you work, the more you put into it, the insights, and just the luck you get along the way, like that creates the freedom. And so like, I have the freedom that we're like working four day weeks at the moment. I'll fly back to the Gold Coast tonight. Like I'm literally overwhelmed with like happiness thinking about this. Amazing. You know, I get to work with you, get to work with St. Hilda's, I go to the airport, I sit in a crummy little virgin lounge and eat my like egg sandwich. We all eat so funny, all these business people in this fancy business lounge drinking out of their paper cups, eating their little like doning all time. This is the funniest thing. Like, everyone takes themselves way too seriously. This is so funny. I sit there, I have this funny little environment, I fly out to the Goldie, I land in beautiful sunshine this week, and tomorrow morning I've got off, I go to the surf, I've got the weekend to see yeah. my family and friends. Like, I get that insane freedom because for the first like three years, it was like, it was intense. It was intense. Yeah. It's, I went, my first winter I went to, I don't know if it's interesting to you, but I'll just tell you this quick little story. Yeah. First winter when I went back to Canada with my partner Steph, uh, for Christmas, 
one of the things that I get really weird in like jet lag, especially flying halfway around the world. And so I'd be up at 1 a.m., 2 a.m. every day. Didn't matter what time I went to bed, 9, 10, 11 p.m., I'm wide awake at 1 or 2 a.m. Jeez. Just because like biologically and jet lag and stuff. Like. Yeah. So I'm awake at 1 or 2 a.m. So that first winter we were there, we were back for maybe like two and a half, three weeks. I was up at 1 or 2 a.m. working non-stop until 7, 8, 9 a.m. when everyone else woke up. It's like my Christmas break was eight, nine, ten plus some work during the day. Over Christmas, in a foreign country, like at one AM, like working on a laptop, me- emailing people. I went to University Toronto campus. I tracked down the president of the student union, had coffee with her. Like, I was just like obsessed because I wanted to learn about the problem. I wanted to find a genuine way to fix it, and I just loved it. Like, I scratched my own itch. I did. This is what I was doing as a student, and then now that I get to do this professionally I think that's where the imposter syndrome comes in of like the gratitude is like it seems like a joke like I get to talk about the stuff I love every day and like and I feel it and it's helping people and someone's willing to pay me to do it I'm like that's insane and it's like if you love meditating volleyball or riding horses or painting that exact same opportunity exists yeah that's, that's so awesome exactly um yeah uh, so that's exactly what I want to do, by the way. I, I, I want to hustle and work hard and, and then do something I love. Yeah. Uh, so I just got one last question. Cool. And that is, um, you know, what's next for Campus Consultancy? And do you plan to do any other businesses in the future or um, just work on campus? Like, what, what's your idea? It's great. So I love this. One of the things I'll share with you here is my mindset is always changing on as I grow, which I think is healthy. And so where I'm at at the moment with this, my honest answer is I'm not focused, I'm focused 5% on where I go next and 95% on where I am right now. And the word I'm obsessed with that came up sort of mid last year and I've just been like throwing at all my entrepreneurial friends is the word enough. I'm obsessed with enough. And so like, as I look across the different areas of my life, like financially, we've got enough. Impact on students, like enough. When we look at number of workshops, like last year I did 300 and something workshops. I'm like, that feels like enough, <laughs> you know, like, that's great. I love them. Yeah. I don't want to do it too many. So I feel like, you know, it's, I, I feel worn down by it. So yeah. like in all these areas, I'm like, oh, I've kind of got enough there. And so when I look at the areas where I'm like, where in my life do I not have as enough? I'm like, oh, you know, I'd like to maybe spend a bit more time with my family, mm-hmm. a bit more time with my friends, you know, really practically in March it's like a bit more time exercise it's like cool we like scale like that a little bit so like I'm always tweaking I'm looking at life holistically in like these 8 to 10 categories yeah. and I'm always trying tweaking to the inputs. tweak right tweak the inputs to maximise the outputs yeah. um, but maybe optimise rather than maximise so for us in the business I'm like cool I can set a goal to grow the business but is that what you want yeah whereas I'm like and whenever I ask people this it, people would always ask me like how are you going to scale and what I realized was, what they were really asking was, how are you gonna make more money? Mm. And the assumption there was, more money will make you more happy. Mm. And so I'm like, I have enough money. So like, well, how would you scale? Well, like, well, if I scaled, I'd be managing more staff, which would take more time, more things could go wrong, managing more clients, I might be busier. No, there's upsides to that yeah. too. But I'm like, the money's not getting me to do it. Yeah. So the next thing is like, okay, well, it's not money that you could impact more people. I'm like, cool. But like, I feel like we're impacting enough people. Mm. This is great. Like, I'm, my vision has solved the problem for everyone. But I'm like, I'm humble enough to know that like, there's a bunch of cool people in this space. Yeah. I don't need to like gobble everybody up. You know, I'm like, I've got my groups and the clients and we love working with them. We've got great relationships. Like, so I'm like, enough impact, enough work. So I'm like, the question I'm like, well, why would you do more work if it's not for money and it's not for impact and so I've never had anyone be able to answer that question so I get this to the point with people where I'm like the reflection back is I'm like the question of what's next if I want to grow and learn because that's a big variety that's a big value for me but there's lots of ways I can grow and learn in the business and honestly other areas of my life that aren't just growth in terms of financials so for me I think the big to answer your question more directly what's next for campus is like I want to be happier every single day running the business. I want to stress less about it 
and I want to level up all my skills on all the little things that I do in the business. But like, I want to just get better at what I do rather than necessarily do more of it. Yeah. Which is weird, right? Because last year, like, I was really on like growth. I really wanted to see could we grow the business a hundred percent, and we nearly quadruple. Oh, well, let's screw this up. So we wouldn't get multiple hundreds. So we had the size of the business. That's a hundred percent. Doubled it. So that's two hundred percent. I can't remember what this is. Nearly tripled it. That's my point. Okay. Nearly tripled it. Yeah. Two hundred fifty something. Nearly tripled it. I think so. We doubled it and then nearly doubled it. Nearly doubled that again. So right. it was massive, right? That's huge. It was huge, huge growth. When when most businesses are, you know, going down the drain. Yeah. That's that's amazing. And like completely changed how we do it. Delivery styles, launching products, different yeah. building online courses, tons of different stuff. Adaptable. Adaptable, right? But because the skills that Here's a great one, learning back to your first question. Remember how I said if you're a rice farmer in the 1500s, yeah. you're safe. But I'm like, it's been dead for 20 years that what you learn now is what you need. The skills I had, this is a great thing, I'm gonna think about this more. The skills I needed and developed from 1 a.m. every morning in Canada, from 2017 to 2020, early 2020, were not the skills I needed in March 2020. Even the skills I developed from 2017 to 2020 to be financially sustainable, be an entrepreneur, do all that stuff, were not the skills I needed in the rest of 2020. Yeah. I needed to reskill and reinvent myself in the last 12 months. So this idea of I'm doing a uni degree now that hasn't changed since for the last 20 years, that was out of date 20 years ago, is so laughable. It is. In the reality of what the world wants. Yeah. That... And, you know, we've got a world of abundance where things are so good and people have record rates of unhappiness. So my obsession with this idea enough is like, I think what's harder is no shortage of entrepreneurs who are setting big ambitious goals. Very few entrepreneurs setting a goal to be truly happy and fulfilled with what they have. There's always going to be something more. It's like, how do you be grateful for what you've got? And given that's one of my two values, looping these questions together, gratitude and service, I'm like, can I be grateful for what I have? Hell yeah. Can I serve with what I've got? Yes. They're my values. Yeah. It used to be growth. It's not anymore. Because I'm like, got enough. Going back to what you said before, um, that's something I think about all the time. And mm. um, we don't necessarily have to put this on the podcast because like, it, it's sort of related to like universities, which is your client. No, it's fine. But, um, like, yeah, universities are teaching you courses that were made 20 years ago. Mm. Uh, this university isn't really like on top of its game in terms of like innovation in, in, mm. in its courses. Do you think that uni is the best place to learn? It's a good question. Is uni the best place to learn? Different for every person. So I don't think there's a general answer to that. Um, I want to indirectly answer that real quick. Yeah. And I think this will land with you. It's not the uni's responsibility for you to learn. Yes. Yeah. So each, and I had like a yelling match last year with someone about this because yeah. I was trying to get him to show him this point and he yeah. came around to it. I was literally yelling at my partner Steph was across the table like, did you just yell at a student? I'm like, yeah, because like we had rapport and I was like with him so I could like give yeah. it straight, you know. I was like busting a limited belief in lifetime. It's not often you can convince someone in that way. No, it's not. <laughs> it almost never works, but it was like this very, like that was just the energy, yeah. right? It's the one time I've ever done it. It's the one time I think it's ever worked. Yeah. You enrolled in this university. Your choice. Your choice. And I learned that because I enrolled in my engineering degree. My choice. Yeah. Right? And I didn't have the knowledge at the time to go, hey, what does the workforce want? What are they teaching me? I just trusted the institution. Yeah. Right? And not only was it, like, it's, you know, quote unquote, great degree, but it wasn't what I did in my degree that got me a job. Yeah. Tons of people did the exact same degree as me, got better marks and didn't get a job. Mm. It's not the degree, it's everything else. Everything else, yeah. Right? So, in the same way that for us, when we choose a degree at a uni, what we realize is we have a, it's a, it's a dismantling and it's a rebirth of a belief that like, oh, I thought I knew how the world worked. I'm gonna trust the biggest, you know, most reputable university. And you go there and you're like, wait, hold on a minute, this isn't right. They don't know everything that they're talking about. Exactly. Yeah. And the trap there, the easy thing to do is to blame them. But you got to look in, in, inward. Yeah. yeah. The maturity there to go from child to adult is to say, oh, I made this choice. 
was it a great choice? I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe not in hindsight. Who knows? You won't necessarily know. Oh, yeah. But I think it's, it, it's self-reinforcing. It is a great choice if you realise it wasn't a great choice and the realisation makes it a great choice. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. You, you watched Gary Vaynerchuk, right? Yes. Did, did you see a couple of days ago, he, he re- released a post where he's talking about like the argument of people paying for university, like government should subsidise education. And he's like, well, students make the decision exactly. to pay for education. That's funny, I haven't seen that, no. Oh, it's really good. I thought, um, yeah, like, uh, it's exactly what you were saying. Yes. Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> there you go. He's, he's awesome. I think he's a rock star. Yeah, I, I literally was listening to one of his podcasts this morning. So it's funny I haven't heard that little clip. Yeah. Uh, but I've heard him talk about uni before as well. Yeah. Hence my first statement of like, I won't say one thing's right for everyone. That's kind of informed by him. Um, Vaynerchukian philosophy. Vaynerchukian. You know? like but, but so I think that realization makes uni worthwhile. Because the trap would be, if you didn't come to uni, maybe you wouldn't have had that realization. Yeah. You know? But what you're doing right now, the meta, this is so meta, this is what's valued about uni that you can meet people stumble into a college have a conversation yeah i would not be having this if my first action was not to come to university and and experience this or like maybe i would have i i don't want to say like i don't know i can't see the future like i'm not an oracle but um yeah like it has been useful in that way yeah yeah and i think you know Gary would say uni's a holiday enjoy it and that's right, right like what are you doing like you go to class like most people spend most of their weeks hanging out yeah you know it's like you that's s- what he says it's a holiday it's a holiday right so cool yeah. and it's like if I would have thought of the holiday like and I did like, my first couple years of college yeah. I was like yeah this is, this is just fun how do I get through class so I can go to the party like, Elon Musk said a similar thing yeah yeah college is just for fun and then fun. Uh, to show that you can do your homework as well. Basically, yeah. It shows, and that's, um, this is a Peterson quote. He says, like, if you graduate a degree, it shows you're intelligent and conscientious. That's it. That's it. It's like, you can work hard and you're bright. It's like, if you get into email, you're bright. You don't get in unless you, you know, you've got some level of intelligence. Yes, but what about everything else? That's exactly. Yeah. Everything else. And so that's where uni gives you an abundance of opportunities, right? And it's up to us to take them and then create them. You know, like, what you're doing here, like you're creating, like, and when you look at the amount of people that create something original, like not an assignment, but like go out on their own and create something, a business, a company, a club, a podcast, a blog, it's a tiny percentage. Mm. It's really small, especially something public. Like not like you wrote a song on your guitar in your room, but like you put it out to the public. It's a really small percentage. Not very many people. Yeah. So I think of it like a van. Out of 8 billion people alive, there's... 50,000 people at University of Melbourne right now, or whatever the number is, 30,000. Mm. That's a small group, but there's tens of thousands of people with commerce degrees. So you go, okay, but how many people have a commerce degree and have a podcast and are a meditator? Like, maybe five. The number gets smaller and smaller and like, smaller. And like, much smaller. I think yeah. people think of a Venn diagram as like a big overlap, whereas like, it's a tiny overlap. Yeah. So it's like, the fact that you can combine, and I got this from Tim Ferriss, if you can combine two or three... Specialised tools? Yeah, something like that, yeah. right? A couple of really niche skills, you become a market of one. So when I started my business, the first clients we worked with were engineering societies because it was I, was... I was an engineer. I was a president of an engineering club, which already means there's not many of them. Like, they take a 1,000 students or 300 in my year and narrow it down to one president. So, yeah. like, I've already got 300 to one. And then... I'm the one president that's worked in graduate recruitment and does personal development. So I'm like... Probably the only person in the world. I'm the only person, at least in Australia, the only engineer who was a club president, who worked in recruitment, who does personal development. Like, I'm the only one. So literally when I was going around, my first like bunch of clients were all engineering faculties. I'm like, oh yeah, you know those clubs? Would you like them to be better? Yes, cool. I was them. Here's what I would have needed. They're like, cool. Can you teach that? Yes, that's what I do. You know? It was so niche. And so I think that's the advantage of... And I got all of that from coming to uni. Hence why I work with unis, because I really believe in the model. I just think they need it, like they're going to constantly need to reinvent themselves. Mm. And why I like the uni space is it's slow to reinvent because they're big and they're based on academia and all that yeah. stuff, but they know that they need to. So I'm kind of like, I had a, someone describe me once as, like in Star Wars, you know, the big like Star Destroyer, Battle Galactica ship things. And yeah, the little Death Star. Death Star, right? Yeah. Those big ships. And then there's a little fighter jet that pops out in front. You're the fighter jet. He's like, 
he literally goes, you're allowed to fire the jet and wear the big thing. And his question was like, he's a, a professor at RMIT, and he's like, what would, if you were me, what would you, like, if you were us, what would you do with you? And I'm like, it's a good question. That, that's a good question. You know? And it's that, like, that, that's a powerful question to be asked. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it was really good. It really changed the way I sort of thought. So I think the reason, and definitely the reason I still work in unis is I just think education is a game changer. Yep. You know? Unis have a really good brand historically of like people want to go to uni, go to college. Yeah. That's changing, but problems equal opportunities. Mm. So there's a goal there of young people to develop and grow and be their best, which I fundamentally believe in. It suits that Judeo-Christian worldview of the powers of the individual. Like it takes individual transformation, which I agree with that individual bit. Yeah. And I think there's huge changes at play at a, but it's so sustainable like it's so what's the word like it's so multi-dimensional it's got students it's got mental health it's got education it's got technology it's got social media it's employers and all these things all wrangle over the top of each other and as someone who like is obsessed and fascinated with ideas the fact that I get to play in a space that like combines all these things is just endlessly fascinating yeah um, so there'll always be something new Always, always something's new, changing, different. We can experiment, we can try things. Yeah. So, yeah, like I, I love it. I love all the little bits of it. And sometimes it's bloody tiring and, you know, but the, I had this, I came up with this language a few years ago of calling it like a moment in my life that I call like a 10. Like 10 out of 10, yeah. as good as life gets. And someone comes in and says like, you helped me. And I'm like, that's as good as life is going to get, you know? So like, if I can do that today, tomorrow, next week, this year I can do that for the next 50 years if I get to the end of my life and a bunch of people are like oh wow you like helped me 20 years ago you helped me with this like I have a former employee who's at a previous company but still she was under I brought her in um, who just became CEO of a big non-profit and like and she's like hey can you come in and work with our executive leadership team and I'm like I, I had this thesis always from the start like I'm working with leaders they're going to be running the companies and if I can help them grow at some point in the future it's like I just think the more you give, the more comes back. So like, I'm just watching this happen. I'm reading the books, doing what they say, and watching it happen. And it's just pretty cool. It's all coming together. Well, Josh, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, man. And um, a year ago when I stumbled into your office, you really helped me. Oh, thanks, so, man. Thanks, man. You're a gentleman.